Well, what are you, what are you so afraid of? Many philosophers, many thinkers, many psychologists recognise that at the heart of every human person are deep fears, fears that drive us, fears that control our behaviour. What are you afraid of? What are we fearful of? Well, the Bible says that we're fearful of many things, but at the core and at the heart of our fear, the Bible says... Fear has to do with punishment. It says it in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. You can look it up after. We're fearful because we're not confident of being acquitted. Judgment would not possess the sting that it does if we were people who had confidence in ourselves and in our abilities. You see, despite what we project and despite what we want others to see inside all of us, the Bible recognises, are deep-held fears, things that control us, things that we're scared of. And we fear judgment. We fear judgment because we know that judgment entails condemnation. What do I mean by that? Well, I struggled with maths at school. Put your hand up if you were good at maths at school. Okay, all right. Well, you won't understand what I'm saying. I hated maths at school. I struggled with it every day. My son, one of my sons is hopeless at maths, and I feel his pain. Now, the prospect of a maths exam for me was something that was very frightening. Why? Well, it was because I knew that I would be found by the test to be what I thought I was. Hopeless at maths. Now, if you were in my class and you were a very, very good student, you were fantastic at maths, I don't think you sweated the night before the exam as I did. You see, we are fearful. And we are fearful of judgment, but we are fearful of judgment because judgment for us as humans contains a condemnation, a realisation that we're not up to scratch. We're not up to scratch... For ourselves, we're not up to scratch in terms of our wider society and most of all, we're not up to scratch when it comes to God. You see, we live under this weight that judgment speaks and judgment both yells at us, you're not good enough, but judgment also whispers incessantly to us. And yet, the concept that at the end of our world is a point of judgment is something that, well, in our modern culture, we've moved past. I mean, that's something that they might have believed in the medieval period before they became enlightened and smart like we are. We've done away with the idea of judgment, a day for which all people will give account for every single thing they've done. We've moved past that as a Western society, haven't we? Not many people, not many politicians speak of a judgment and a judgment day. And so we think we've ridded ourselves of judgment, but we haven't. We have failed to rid ourselves of judgment. What we've, in fact, done is handed over judgment from God to others. 
We live in a culture of outrage. People are outraged by behaviours, by comments that are made. What is that? That's a culture of judgment. Because we've said, no, God's not the judge. And so if God's not the judge, you know who has to be the judge? Well, it's me of you and you of me. This is what we've done in our society. We hand judgment to others because we don't give it to God. And when we give it to others, well, we give it to others who aren't impartial, who aren't righteous, who don't know how to judge properly. We live in a world which is constantly judging one another. And in fact, we're doing it ourselves. We're measuring ourselves up against other people's standards, not quite meeting it. Well, actually, I'm better than them, and so I feel better about myself. You see, we might not think about the concept of judgment in our modern secular world, but we haven't done away from judgment. And we haven't done away with the reality that within all of us is a deep fear of judgment. And so what do we do? What do we do? Well, there's three things on the outline that I've suggested. Firstly, we flee the reality of judgment. We flee relationships because of the threat of their judgment. I mean, who likes to be friends with a critical person? Not me. I doubt you want to be friends. You don't want to know from a friend all of your imperfections. Why? Because you have to leave the imperfections, not them. You're quite aware of them, no doubt. We'll flee judgment. We avoid painful experience. We don't like talking with people who criticise us. You see, the problem of fleeing from judgment, of fleeing from our fear of condemnation, is that it doesn't work. We can try to escape people's judgment, but when we come back to reality, we're just back to the same world that we left. I don't know if you've ever engaged in this where someone's talking to you and your mind kind of wanders because what they're talking to you either doesn't interest you or perhaps uh, worse, it offends you and then you start to think about their deficiencies and how you're superior and before you know it, you're a million miles away as the person's talking to you, present but yet absent. You see, we remove ourselves in relationships from judgment. That's because we've ultimately removed ourselves from God. This is what happens, is it not, in the garden. As the Bible first unfolds, as our world is brought into being, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 10, the woman says, I was naked, so I hid. We flee. Secondly, we resist the reality of judgment. That's our second strategy. There's this kind of defiant opposition to the reality of judgment. But the problem is that we're not strong enough to win this victory. And thirdly, we appease. We negotiate for peace against this concept of judgment, hoping for the best. We might lose more if we stand up to this judgment and so we lay down. It's kind of like we agreed the impossible demands of a boss. You ever had a boss with impossible expectations of you and you try and please them once and then what happens? What happens when you try and please a boss once? They want you to do it again and again and again. This is what we do with the reality of judgment. We either flee from it, we run away from it, we appease it, or we resist it. But it doesn't work. 
it doesn't work because we're still left with our fears. The Bible says in Psalm 139 that if I go up to the heavens, you are there. There's no way we can flee or run from this judgment. We can try and resist it. But Job eventually comes to the point where he he disagrees with God. He protests to God and even he says that when I get to speak with God face to face, I'll sort him out. And then at the close of the book, he comes to this realisation, I know that you can do all things, that is, I can't. No plan of yours can be thwarted. And we know that appeasement doesn't work. It's not as if we can try and bargain with God like he's some divine employer trying to please him, try to do our bit such that he might not see how bad we really are. The book of Romans says that no matter how good a person we are, in fact, no how bad a person we are, there is no one who is declared righteous before God. Romans chapter 3, 20. And so this is what goes on. This is what goes on, I think, in our heart of hearts. Half the time we're, we're, we're running from judgment. Some of the time we're fighting it. The other times we're trying to appease it. And so we end up in this position of what we might call spiritual personality disorder, where we're trying all these approaches. The reality of judgment isn't going away. And so we've got all these strategies, we'll run from it, we'll fight it, we'll try and bargain, but it doesn't work. It means that we're not quite sure where we are, who we are. In fact, this is the situation that Paul was in when he wrote that chapter. Why don't you open up to Romans chapter 8? Because you see at the end of Romans chapter 7, Paul's in this situation where he says in this moment of crisis that there's this... There's this disorder within him there in Romans chapter 8, verse 22. For my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law at sin at work within my members. Paul is like this. He's, in one sense, fragmented. His mind is at war with his body, He doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know which way is up. And there he says, there in verse 24, what a wretched man I am. This is a man writing to a church, trying to encourage them. He's led them. He's writing to build them up. And here in the middle of his letter, he's despairing of who he actually is before God, of his fragmented self. He's all over the place. There's this internal battle within him. What is he going to do? This is a moment of crisis. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is how Romans chapter 8 starts. It starts with this reality of where our fears come from. It realises that within all of us are these deep fears and we'll try everything that we can to deal with them but we end up just detaching ourselves, not knowing who we are. And 
Paul tries to explain why this is the case. He tries to explain it there in verse 2. He says that there's a force that's at work there in verse 2. It's the law of sin and death. Now, it's important to understand how Paul is using the word law here. Now, this is slightly technical, won't take long, stay with me. When you hear law, what do you think of? Help me out. When you hear law, what do you think of? Police. What? Police. Oh, okay, police. Yeah, ex-policeman here. Uh, particularly in the Bible, when you hear the word law, what do you think of? Yeah, go. yeah Ten Commandments, right. The, the law of Moses. Okay, we, we read those Ten Commandments out. Uh, there is a sense in which those Ten Commandments condemn us. They're good commandments, but we don't meet their standard. But that's not what Paul's speaking of here. Because the, word, the, the way he's using the word law there is to, to speak of a principle or, or a force. He's saying the law of sin and death is a principle and a power. And this principle of power has trapped us. This principle and power is the force of sin and death. And he uses the word law because laws make demands. Law sets set a standard for which we measure up to. And here's how this law makes its demand. It makes its demand upon us and it condemns us because those demands are not met because we can't overcome sin. We can't. What we can do is we can try and redefine sin. Now, that's what our world does. Um, what our world often does is what's traditionally understood as sin is reinterpreted sometimes under the guise of sickness. Um, this is particularly the case. We see this in psychology. I read this fascinating article from the 1960s by a psychologist and he was talking about how our world's kind of tried to liberate our culture from this notion of sin um, because it's, you know, it's, it's terrible to speak of people who are sinful. They can't be free if we speak of that it in this way. But he says, we're not free because we have the excuse of being sick rather than sinful. And he goes on to say that, in fact... When we call something sickness, when it's not really sickness, that presents to us a problem because what do we do? We try and medicate something in our lives, a dysfunction in our lives. And there are, and and I'm not uh, disputing that there are serious medical dysfunctions that are appropriately uh, medicated with. But this this, um, psychologist sees that by trying to redefine sin... By trying to confuse or conflate those categories of sin and sickness and put them all into one category, what this ends up doing to us is, he says, it cuts at the very roots of our being. We lose a deep sense of selfhood, identity and identity. And so what he says is, actually, from a psychological point of view, the idea of sin can be very helpful. He says this, I call for a revival of the consciousness of a sense of guilt, in short, a revival of sin. This is a guy who's not a Christian. What he's observing is the way in which everything's been collapsed in our world into sickness. And so he's saying, actually, it was kind of helpful having those two categories. Why do we need more breast beaters 
Shall we add depression to the already already mentioned gloom and world uneasiness? Why not a no-fault theology? No one to blame. Things just happen. Alas, here's why. The assumption there is sin in a problem implies both a possibility for and the obligation for intervention. He says that when something's a sin, you need you need something more than medication. You need you need to be rescued. You need to be rescued from a sin. And that's exactly what Paul is speaking of here, because he understands that the law of sin and death has held us captive, it's pushed us down, and we need rescuing. We need rescuing. That's what he talks about there in verse 2. Verse 2, he says, Through Christ Jesus, the law of spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. See, there is a reality for which sin has held us. There is a reality that the Bible recognises that we are trapped by sin. But here the Apostle Paul is saying another force has come. Another law has come. And this law, this force, this reality releases us from the law of sin and death. This is the law or the reality of the spirit. This is not a force that comes from within but this is a force that comes from outside. Here is a force that comes not from mere human effort, but from divine grace. And so we need to remember as Christian people, we don't need to fear. We don't need to fear judgment. In fact, that's the very way in which Paul starts. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, For there is no condemnation now. For those in Christ Jesus, judgment is a reality. It's a fearful reality outside of the Lord Jesus. But for those in Christ, we don't need to fear. Our lives ought not be driven by fear because God's done something about it. And that's what he talks about there in verses 3 and 4, that God has sent his own son, firstly, there in verse 3. Here is an expression of the Father's love. He sent his Son in sacrificial love. Secondly, he sent the divine Son in the likeness of sinful man. Um, What Paul's talking about here is important for us to realise because um, it's not that the Son came in the likeness of flesh only to be seen as a human. And when Jesus came, he came truly, fully as a human, not just in the appearance of a human, not just looking like a human, but actually truly human. And nor does it say he came in sinful flesh, because as he comes as a human, he doesn't come as a sinful human, Now, in his humanity, we know that he was sinless, but he comes in the likeness of sinful flesh because his humanity was both real and his sinlessness was a reality at the same time. Thirdly, he comes as a sin offering. He comes to deal 
with this law, this burden that we feel. He comes to deal with sin there in verse 3 as a sin offering. And fourthly, he comes to to condemn sin in sinful man, that is, in the flesh or in the humanity of Jesus, real and sinful human, real and sinless humanity. He was made sin with our sins. We're talking about the cross at the moment. And we're thinking about all the different aspects of the cross. And here Paul, I think, helps us understand a very important aspect of the cross. Because if we live a life under the weight of judgment and condemnation, then we haven't understood the cross. Because here what Paul is saying in verse 3 is that condemnation in itself has been condemned. God judged our sins in his sinless humanity. And Jesus bore them in our place. We looked at that uh, three weeks ago as we saw this exchange that God had, um, that, that had taken place where our sinful humanity is placed upon him and his righteousness is given to us. And so when we think about the cross of Jesus, we need to remember that the law condemns sin in the sense of expressing its disapproval of it. But when God condemned sin in his son, judgment fell on him. Judgment fell on him. And it fell on him finally. It fell on him finally, such that, fifthly, we're told there in verse 4 that we do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. See, we might have expected Paul to speak differently there in verse 4. We might have expected him to write that God condemns sin in Jesus in order that we might, what, escape condemnation. But that's not what he writes. He says that we do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the flesh, sorry, um, earlier on, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met. See why Jesus died? Jesus died so that our sins are dealt with. But that's only half of it. Jesus died so that we can now live according, not to our sinful nature, not to the fears which so often drive us, but according to the Spirit. And when we live according to the Spirit, that is a life of freedom. That is a life of liberation. The life of the law of sin is a life of bondage. It's a life of judgment. But here in the Gospel, here in Romans chapter 8, Paul is saying that Jesus has died such that sin and its power and its hold on us has been extinguished. And it's not simply that there is no, non, no condemnation of us. It is also that we now live according to the Spirit. And so when Paul starts Romans chapter 8 with these words, there is now no, non, no condemnation, he means it. He doesn't say that you're not condemned. He says that there is no more condemnation when? 
in the future, perhaps when <clears throat> you're able to fix yourself up and reach some goal that you've set for yourself or that others have set for you, when is there no condemnation? There's no condemnation now. Now for you. See what's happened in the gospel? Lord Jesus died 2,000 years ago. And we're told in Romans chapter 6 that the reality of the resurrection is at work in us now. The resurrection pulls, if you like, what God did in Jesus 2,000 years ago into our lives now. So it's at work in us. It means that for the Christian, condemnation doesn't even exist. It's not a category. It's gone. It's been removed. It's not even possible anymore. And this is what it is to be a Christian. It's to realise this. It's to realise that there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation. Our world might judge us. We might judge ourselves. But when we trust in the Lord Jesus, the God of the universe will not hold judgment for our sin against us. And, you know, look, if you've been around church for a little while, this is nothing new. Jesus died on the cross for your sins so that you don't have to bear its judgment. But friends, this is an unbelievable love. This is a love, I think, that we don't believe because we find ourselves gripped by fear with all our little strategies to kind of escape or resist or bargain with judgment. We find ourselves, I think, fundamentally, this is the case for me, unlovable when we're actually honest with ourselves. When we move past the exterior, what is inside us is not something that we want to show to others. It's not something that we particularly like about ourselves. It's not something that we even love ourselves. And so the concept that God loves us, I don't think we believe it. Yes, yes, I know that you know that Jesus died for you and you're a Christian person trust. But the reality is I think too often we don't believe that God loves us. You know why? Because we think the rationale, we think the motivation... For God's love of us is the same motivation and rationale that we express love. Human love is in the beauty of that which is beheld, the object. It appears beautiful to me and therefore I love it. I have no trouble loving my kids. Why? They're so lovely to me, right? But this is not how God loves God doesn't look upon us and see our loveliness. He looks upon us and sees our corruption. He looks upon us and sees our sin. But God chooses to love us despite the reality of who who we are because the nature of his love is not found in us. The nature of his love is found in his decision in his decision to send Christ in the likeness of human flesh to condemn sin. There is his love. One um, Christian philosopher and thinker back in the 18th century, he says that, um, you know, God's love for us is so profound that God has to disguise it simply for us to believe it. It's so beyond our comprehension. Friends, this is the truth that we need to keep remembering. Yes, there's nothing new that Jesus died for your sins. But friends, we need to remember every day as we live in a world of judgment, 
as we indeed judge ourselves, that we don't quite measure up to our own standards or others or even God's, that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Have you heard this phrase, um, I'd really like just to discover a better version of myself? Have you heard that phrase, a better version of myself? It's quite popular these days. But can I say, if we think of a future possibility of a better version of ourselves, and at that point when we reach that goal of a better version of ourselves, then then we can be lovely and then we can accept ourselves. Friends, you know what that leads to? That leads to exactly the same reality we saw at the start. We leave to a fragmented self. I am who I am now, but there's, there's in the future a better version of myself. There's this gap between the ideal self and the self I am now. There's this gap between my ideal family and the family I have now. There's this gap between my ideal friends and the friends I have now. There's this gap between my ideal church and the church I have now. And so if we think, if we defer our approval of ourselves or indeed of God for us until we reach an ideal selves, we never get there. It's like this emotional and spiritual Pinterest board that's there always mocking us, always saying that we're not good enough and our culture colludes in this way. We never become the ideal self. It's a moving target. It's a phantom, the ideal self, that doesn't exist. The self that God has a relationship with in the Lord Jesus is the you now. It's not once you've fixed yourself up and made yourself more likeable or more lovable. He loves you now. Why? Because the Lord Jesus has condemned sin in the flesh. And so there is no condemnation of you if you're in Christ Jesus Why do you condemn yourself if the God of the universe has spoken a word of forgiveness to you? In the Old Testament, this is where I'll finish, the devil is often called the accuser. And uh, I've got this image in my mind, it's like an iPhone watch, but the iPhone watch isn't on our wrist, it's in our hearts. And someone's put the settings that maximise all the updates and notifications and it's like in our hearts and in our minds, it's, got, it's buzzing. It's buzzing all the time. And it's a word of accusation. It's a word of the devil saying, you are not good enough. You are too sinful. You'll never be able to do it. You're not loved. It's going off. It's ringing in our hearts and in our minds. But friends, we need to remember that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Next weekend, once we put that font up there, we're going to baptise Chantilly, Chantilly Ho. And I'm going to ask her this question, do you renounce the devil and all his empty promises? I'm going to ask her that question. Because there's a name for an empty promise and it's a lie. It's the lie of the evil one. And there next week, Chantilly in her baptism will renounce the lies of the evil one. And there is a reality for her life and for her Christian life that she can't ever move beyond. The devil, the accuser, will tell us that we're never good enough, that we don't 
make the standard. But the Lord Jesus, in his death, says to us, there is no condemnation now. Amen. Please stand as we sing.